If I get our extroverts to sit down, I love it. We need you. You're you're that you uh, you get us going. Well, this morning um, I have been charged with the task of continuing our series, but to uh, as always uh, usually happens to me in when I know a message is coming uh, that's got. A lot of study. It feels like I've gone in like four-week travel of, you know, some exotic vacation, and I have to tell you in 35 minutes and make you experience everything. Um, I have way too much this morning, and so this will be a bit of a fire hose. But I do uh, want to ask that you extend lots of grace this morning, because my goal this morning is not to uh, hurt or offend or demonize any denomination or any group, but really to educate and to inspire you about the church. So we've been in a series about elephants in your faith, and the reason that we've, we've chosen this series is because we've been hearing things, and specifically just as the nine years I've been here, of hearing things in conversation. And so I might finish a message and someone will say, well, I agreed with some of what you said and disagreed with other stuff. And I find that interesting. I said, well, you don't have to agree with me. I said, but really, I wasn't giving you opinion. Very, very seldomly do I give you my opinion. Um, most often, I'm telling you more of what the Scripture is, how I understand it. Now, that's fair, because we probably have interpretation issues at times. But I will ask that, and so I'll say, well, what part didn't you agree with? And they may say, well, parts of the Bible. I don't know if the Bible is relevant. And so we, for the first week, said, well, what's the highest authority in life? And we said, if there is no highest authority, which all of us would say it would be God himself, but God authored and inspired uh, the Bible that we have today, we see that as authority. And if there is no authority, then we have what's called relativism. And we have just people saying, well, I believe this is true, and this is true for me, and this is true for you. And they can't all be true. And so we addressed that the first week. The second week, we talked about really what's the highest goal in your life. And that's a big question for a lot of people in our culture today in Wisconsin to ask the question, what is the highest goal? What, what should you be trying to attain? And the scripture says very clearly is that it's to be like Jesus. And so the elephant has been, there have been lots of conversations about religious conversations and religious topics in this city where people will say, well... Jesus was a good guy, and some of the stuff I believe he did, but I don't know if you can just trust all of the stuff he did. That's an elephant in your faith. That's a, that's, some, that's a problem if you don't have a highest authority in Scripture and that you don't see the highest call is to be like Jesus. And this is what we've been trying to address. This morning I want to ask you a third question. What's the highest purpose in your life? What is it that you're to be about Daily. We know that your highest authority is the Scripture as God has authored it and left it for us that through the Holy Spirit we're to, to get insight and be taught by God as we read it. Gosh, sub-point there, we got to read it. But, but second is to be like Jesus. But then thirdly, what does the day look like? What's our purpose? And I'm here to tell you this morning that our purpose is to be an active member in the body of Christ. Not member as you perceive it, like, I, how do I join? You see, we're not a country club. And there's not like membership dues, and there's not like hoops you jump through. 
Uh, this is not that way. And Jesus lays out very clearly what his church will be like. And I want to talk about that this morning. The elephant I want to address that I feel like has been maybe one of the most paralyzing things I've noticed in our culture is that there's a sense that tradition will give me right standing with God. That tradition, uh, if I follow it, because my family's followed it for centuries, my family's always done it this way, we always go to this church this time at this date, if I just plug in my attendance, that somehow that tradition makes me right with God or enters me into, really, in a heaven-based eternal relationship with God. And friends, that's a huge elephant in your faith. And we come from a, a culture here that's you know, highly European and it's German and Polish roots. A lot of that is tradition and a lot of that is you, you don't change things and you leave them the same. And there's a lot of beauty in that. And this morning, I'm not going to bash tradition because tradition is beautiful when it calls us to remember and respond. Let me say that again. Tradition is not only beautiful but powerful when it calls us to remember who God is and calls us to respond. Now, the problem is there's lots of traditions out there, but I want to clear up this morning about how do we or what are we supposed to be about? John 14, 6, Jesus says himself, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No tradition enters us into any right standing with God. It is through Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul writes a letter to the Ephesian church. He says, it is by grace that you've been saved. He'll later on say it's not by works so that no one could boast. Could you imagine if it was like about works? Right, And we could earn things with God, and it was like a competition. Now, you have to understand, your pastor, I am highly competitive. And so if it was about works, I'd be in the game. I would be wanting to beat you like crazy, and you're not laughing at that, but that's true. I would. I would be, it would be about earning favor and trying to get right standing. How great it is that God said, it is not about earning. It is about grace and a gift I give. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. So wait a second. Jesus will talk about, follow the traditions I'm passing on to you. So tradition's not bad in itself, but when we follow human tradition and it doesn't call us to remember truth and respond to truth, it is worthless. Uh, the prophet Amos in the Old Testament is prophesies to the nation of Israel, and he says, I'm going to paraphrase, basically, I hate your tradition, God says. I hate your songs, I hate your festivals, I hate all the stuff you do under my name. Why? God was frustrated because it doesn't change the heart. Tradition needs to change the mind and the heart of people. We earn nothing through just plugging in tradition. So many of you have large families, especially in Wisconsin. Everybody's connected to somebody. And typically, that means that you have a tradition in your family, probably a faith tradition. And this morning, I want to help you understand that there is no tradition that's free from uh, murkiness and darkness. What do I mean by that? Even at Community Church here, we have our own traditions. We're non-denominational. That means, you know, we're like free from any tradition. Yet the irony is we create our own tradition, right? 
we in some ways create our own denomination. And denominations are branches of, of different thinking on theology and tradition. And so there's a phrase in Germany that came out centuries ago, and it comes out of um, this picture of this woman who's bathing her baby in bathwater, and the bathwater gets dirty. And what we don't do, that's where this phrase comes in, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If we think about the church over centuries, would we not all agree that it's a muddy tub filled with a lot of darkness, a lot of bad decisions, a lot of flawed thinking? And we've talked about this in our human nature. We bring that into the church culture, yet we're not to throw out the beautiful baby, the church, in the midst of that. We're somehow to find what is it was God's intention with the local church. This idea really is, we practice this, I mean, I'm sure every one of us has sometimes been to a doctor. And I, I protected all of our medical um, professionals in the room, and I, I didn't want to say, raise your hand if you've had a bad experience with a doctor or a nurse. But if we have one, and maybe you have had one, you don't then say, forget it, I'm never going to a doctor again. It would be silly, you'd be throwing out the, the, the great part of the baby, and that is that that the medical culture that gives so much to us that could provide help and assistance in an even greater way. We're called this morning to look at really the ugliness of the bathwater, but not throw out the baby. And that is the church. And we can find that I think the elephant is that, well, all churches are the same, aren't they? Aren't I just to join the one that I feel best with and like their traditions? No, it's so much deeper than that. This morning I want to give you um, like a 101 level of church history. And I am not an ancient history theologian. Uh, I basically immerse myself. I love church history, uh, quite frankly, because I think it unlocks a lot of some of the, uh, I would say, powerful conversations that can happen in families and in, in conversation. And, there, and that putting down your foot when you start to learn about how some things came to be. Uh, let me give you a picture this morning. We know that the very beginning of our Bibles talks about a garden, and then there's the fall in Genesis chapter 3, and then we have this journey, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, where God establishes a people, the Jews, the Jewish nation. It's the Israelite nation, the Hebrew nation. And Judaism becomes a very strong part of our roots. Friends, this morning, we come out of a branch a strong branch of Judaism. Now, the Jews stop there, right? The Old Testament ends, and Jesus is born. We're going to celebrate his birth. I'm sorry I got in trouble because somebody said to me, you wrecked my Christmas because you told me Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Um, he wasn't. Um, it was actually a pope that um, decided that he would counter the evil holiday, a uh, pagan holiday, and said, let's do Christmas then. We'll show him. And so... Uh, snow and all that stuff is all just our own thing. Anyway, Jesus born in the fifth, um, fifth actually uh, A.D. and uh, actually, and the birth of the church launches, and Jesus uh, begins his journey uh, of living a perfect life and beginning this journey with the church. We find though in 33 A.D. Pentecost begins, and Pentecost is. Uh, the time where the Holy Spirit comes in. So Jesus dies, resurrects again, and the Holy Spirit is given. It's so beautiful because we see in the Old Testament, God sets up a temple, a place, a set of rules. 
And then Jesus says, listen, I've come to fulfill that, and no longer is there brick and mortar and temples and all that stuff. No more robes, no more priests. I'm fulfilling all that. Now you are the temple, and you are the priests. And he says, and I will invade your life. I will inhabit you through the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what Pentecost was. And see, we see the launch of the church and the Holy Spirit in 33 A.D., now, 49 A.D., what starts to form, as you see in your, in your Bibles in the New Testament, is this whole unfolding of churches trying to figure it out. They don't have a, a, a full cohesive canon yet, meaning they're using Old Testament scriptures, some letters are being written, but they're trying to understand what does it mean to stay theologically correct, and how do we stay true to the basics of teaching and the basics, these teachings that Jesus has left us. And this is a struggle. So the Council of Jerusalem is formed in about 49 AD, and the half-brother of Jesus, James, is on that. And we find that this is kind of the council that begins to try to somehow bring clarity to all these church plants that are going all over the area and the region. Now about 311, 312, and 313 AD, something interesting is happening in Rome. 311 AD, Constantine uh, passes the Edict of Tolerance. The Edict of Tolerance was saying no more killing Christians, basically, I'm paraphrasing. He says this can't happen anymore, and he ends some of that horrible journey of, of the persecution of Christians. In 312, he ends up fighting that famous battle over that bridge, and it's the, the battle that he has this dream, Constantine, and, and he's the ruler of, of Rome, and, he, and it's the, the dream to put the cross on the shields or lead with the cross. It's debatable exactly what he did. But remember, he has victory. Because of that, 313 is the Edict of Milan. That edict was all should know this Christ. It basically summarized to invite all. And so Rome then begins to embrace Christianity. Now again, I want you to hear that this term, Catholic, um, we're going to talk about many different veins this morning, and uh, by, I, by no means am I saying one's um, better than the other, but I'm going to tell you, the word Catholic comes out of really this earlier journey, which just means universal church. The idea of a Roman Catholic church, as we understand it today, isn't even in existence yet, and yet you're seeing the seeds of a beginning of how it's starting to form and leadership is starting to form. Now, as any church needs, we need leadership, don't we? We need Ways to remember, and this is where traditions are beautiful, remember the truth. And so things like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed are, are these phrases that people would remember. We see later on in church history where stained glass was formed, and sometimes we think that's so horrible, and yet if you didn't have a literate culture, the ways to remember these stories were through these beautiful pieces of art. And so it's something that we can embrace in our culture today as long as it calls us to remember and respond. In four, uh, 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea forms, and it launches about seven different uh, meetings and gatherings over things like theology and doctrine and leadership and the canon of Scripture and which books are in there. And this is where uh, the Deuterocanon or the Apocrypha, other books that were brought in. And so there, it's a lot of debating and dialoguing. About 476, though, we start to see something arise in Rome, and that is a section of the Roman church begins to assume more authority. 
And they want to assume what's called global or universal authority over all of the church all over the world. And this pushes us right to about 1054, which is called the Great Schism. And this is where you see that the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church, um, as we know it today, Coptic churches or any of the Greek or Eastern Orthodox churches, um, Rome, uh, the, the way the story goes, it's actually a Roman bishop walks into an, an Orthodox church and slams down a bull, not a physical bull, but it says, I'm basically excommunicating you out of the church. Well, they did the same thing to them, and then this great split. Now, this split between Eastern and Western Christian churches, um, between Greek-speaking and Latin-speaking, was largely around political, geographical, theological, doctrinal lines. But this became a massive separation and how we have now branches off of this orthodox line. Now, it's important that you see that. That's, again, the, the, the bathwater gets dirty. And you'll see that. Uh, 1095 AD, the Crusades. Probably one thing that we universally see as a black mark on any denomination is this idea of the Crusades. A violent way through violence um, and forcing people to come to Christ. And friends, you can't do that. You can't force a heart to surrender. And only Christ through his spirit can do that. And we find that this is what's going on. And even today, you see many of the Crusades uh, throughout uh, that land in some of their temples and things. And it's a, it's a dark spot in our history in the fight over Jerusalem through the eastern and western churches. But what we see is about 1517 A.D., this, what's called the Great Reformation. And for Protestants, we would consider ourselves a Protestant branch off of this journey. Both the Orthodox Church and the uh, Protestants and the Catholic line all claim to go back to, remember, to the original. So I want you to hear that all are trying to go back to what is the original picture of the church. Now I will say much of what we call liturgical uh, tradition comes out of a lot of Old Testament. It's one of the things that we've got to struggle against. That robes and smoke and fire and a lot of those things are great pictures in the Old Testament of what Jesus will fulfill. But we're not really mandated to do those things. And yet, when church leadership begins to form, a lot of them bring some of those practices in. You're even your Bibles talks about this. The Jews were saying, yeah, we'll let non-Jews in, but it has to be Jesus plus this, plus this. There's always a struggle to add something else to Jesus. So 1517, this great reformation, and this is where Protestant, it's where it comes out of the word protestant or protester. On Saturday, October 31st, 1517, a 33-year-old theology professor at Wittenberg University walked over to the Castle Church in Wittenberg and nailed a paper of 95 theses to the door, hoping to spark an academic discussion about their contents. This is Martin Luther, and he is not happy about 95 different issues that are going on in the church at that point. And remember, um, the church in Rome is trying to kind of have authority, but this is a church in Germany. Now, what happens um, right now, Luther is condemning some of specifically the excesses of corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, especially the papal practice of payment calling indulgences. At this time, they're selling forgiveness of sins to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, again, I'm not going to, this is a lot of grace because I'm not deeming, I have a lot of friends that are Lutherans and Catholics and Protestants and Methodists and Baptists that love Jesus. 
But what you're going to get the picture this morning is that there's murky bathwater around it. And this is not a good picture. And so Luther, this is one of his areas that he's not happy with and does not like and feels it's contrary to what he reads Scripture as. And so he is going to be one that brings back this idea of that we are saved by grace. And that, that our works then become a fruit of giving, having received this gift of grace. Um, this goes on, though, and you see there's a divide. The Protestant church, which begins to, to spark out in different denominationals from Methodist to Baptist to Presbyterian, it goes down the list. Roman Catholic Church, though, continues on, and it establishes more authority and begins to then see itself and separate itself as we are our own authority and we are calling ourselves the Roman Catholic Church. And this is where a Latin-speaking different than Greek-speaking Orthodox Church. Making sense? There's a lot here this morning. So then we have just this last little piece. Where did the whole Anglican branch come from? And actually, I think Presbyterian came out of this. But in England, uh, in 1534, King Henry VIII didn't like his wife. And so he says, I want a divorce, and asked the Pope, and the Pope said, no, we don't do that. And so he said, fine, if you don't give me a divorce, I'm going to start my own denomination. And sure enough, he started the Church of England, which is where we get the Anglican Church and many off branches off of that. Now, doesn't that feel like we need to take a bath this morning, huh? Any of us? And yet this is, this is, the, this, this is that tub of bathwater, and in there, there is a baby, and is the bride of Christ. It's called the church. And this morning, my goal here is to help us understand that Jesus lays out what the church is. And we muck up a lot of that water a lot of the times, even here at Community Church. I'll be the first, so if you're this morning or Catholic or Lutheran or Methodist or Baptist or first free Methodist of Baptist something, 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 you know, the titles get longer. We're all flawed, and we all struggle to find where is this beautiful picture of the church what is the church? I want to answer four questions this morning, and I want to first answer, who leads the church? Because don't you wonder, we see today that it seems like certain, whether it's the papacy or is it pastors, who really leads the church? Matthew 16, if you turn in your Bibles this morning, Matthew 16, we're going to go to the highest authority. If you don't have a Bible this morning, raise your hand. We'll get somebody to Run over there and get a Bible. Raise your hand. Matthew chapter 16. We need a Bible in the front here. I see that hand. I feel like an auctioneer. Anybody else a Bible? Matthew chapter 16. Again, I assure you this morning, what I'm going to tell you is not my opinion. Uh, so hopefully you understand this comes right from the authority we establish as, as truth. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, really, the entire chapter is a great discourse, but... Uh, verse 13, Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? Jesus has really kind of taken uh, just uh, uh, about a day and a half's walk and said, I'm going to take you somewhere to ask you this question. Now, interesting fact, Trisha and I got to go here to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a, a city built by Philip, son of the Caesar at the time, for his father, uh, in dedication to him, but with the theme. It was like a theme park city underneath the mythological pan god. It's a little goat boy that plays the flute. 
And there's a whole lot in that. This city, though, is carved out out of a solid, like the Rock of Gibraltar, literally a cliff that's five times higher than our church walls here, straight up, and it's carved into the rock. This is called Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you were a good Jew, you do not go to Caesarea Philippi. It would be unclean. It's almost as if Jesus says, hey, guys, I'm going to take you. Let's get on the plane. It's going to take us a day to get there. We're going to go to Las Vegas and walk the strip. This is where he's taken them. Now we don't know how close he got to where some of the places we were, but we know he was in the region of Caesarea Philippi, probably close enough to point to, and ask this question. It says, who do people, who do these people say I am? Now at this city, they were doing human sacrifices. They were doing uh, orgies in the temple, and they were basically gates carved into these walls, literally with, with uh, these pagan gods and goddesses. They had a pool of water. The pool still exists today that they'd throw bodies in. If they sank, the God accepted it. If they floated, they had to get another. And so this was ongoing, a normal practice in this city. Jesus says, who, does, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus asks the question that, guys, friends, this morning, I think that's what he's asking you. Who do you say I am? Okay, let's stop for a moment. I love family. I love getting together with our family. And I love some of our family traditions. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that the answer that our family gives for us gives us relationship or right standing with God. In other words, the question that Jesus will ask you is not who your family is in love with. is who do you say I am? Not what traditions did you follow, but who do you say Jesus is? This is the question that we're called every week to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and how we can live for him. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Then, verse 16, Simon Peter answers, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus replied. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by the flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Could you see the double meanings there? He's standing on a rock, or pointing to this rock, and Peter's just made a claim to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, which is the rock. He renames Peter as the rock. It says, Peter, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Can you see the picture? The gates of Hades, the doorways to these hellish places. Gates of Hades means place of the dead. And he says, my, and, and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now friends, this passage is where we have a fork in the road. This passage actually establishes the papacy in Catholicism. Now, again, if you're Catholic this morning, this just gives you insight, not my opinion. You can read for yourself, well, this morning we can read for ourselves, the Catechism of the Catholic Church um, and how that establishes its leadership. Now, again, this morning, we ask for grace. I have lots of friends that know Jesus and love the Catholic tradition. 
And this morning, we as a church, as Protestants, would not see the Pope as an infallible person. But this is where it launches itself out of this passage in this text. Here is what the Catechism of the Catholic Church writes, the second edition, 881. The Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter, the rock of his church. He gave him the keys of his church and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock, the whole thing. The office of binding and loosing, which was given to Peter, was also assigned to the College of the Apostles and united in its head. Now let me just describe what binding and loosing means. In your Old Testament, there are rabbis and priests, and they begin to take on the authority to say what things are right and what things are wrong. So I might say to Peg this morning, Peg this morning, I'm going to bind the fact that you can't wear Aaron Rodgers jerseys because he's not playing, so that's wrong. It's just wrong. And, and I speak from an infallible authority as if I'm speaking for God and make a law. So that's called binding. Loosing might say, but you could wear a Clay Matthews jersey because today that's just what... I, and so you see how that becomes subjective to the Pope who has that ability at that time. Now, disciples were doing this at this time. The pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church, church's very foundation, and it's continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. The Pope, the Bishop of Rome, and, and Peter's successor is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and the whole company of the faithful. That means every person in the world that says that they're a Christ follower. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can exercise unhindered, unaccountable to anyone except Jesus himself. Now, this is the foundation that gets laid about 400 years, about 400 A.D. So this idea of the authority or infallibility of a pope only becomes later on. Now, I will, I will confess this morning that I do just see that a structure and authority not as infallible more as a pastoral leadership bishops and priests and how they operate as just another form i'm prob it's a problem for me it's problematic to say that he's infallible and here's why jesus replies blessed are you simon son of jonah that this was revealed to you and he says that and so it's not you in general it is to you and we know that Peter does get an apostolic role as head of the church or head of the apostles. He's the first and last apostle mentioned in the Gospels, I believe. He has a sighting of Jesus' resurrection. But Peter's also the one that really seems to stick his foot in his mouth and follows, falls the most. We see this, though, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And there's a play on words here. It says, I tell you that you are Peter. It's the Greek word petros, and it means stone. And it can mean, you know, just various sizes of stone or a rock or maybe even a boulder. But on this rock is actually the word petra, which means more of like a slab, a cliff of stone or rock of Gibraltar. It's something massive. And so while some may believe that, that Peter becomes the entirety of the authority of the church. We see here that, well, he's not only in Caesarea Philippi, Peter is a part of something. 
Now, what we see in the text that Jesus, um, if this idea that Peter is infallible, that if he's a pope at this point, which again comes only about 400 years later, it says this in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. So Peter takes him aside. He, he's just disturbed at this news. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now what happens in verse 23 is pretty powerful because Jesus, if, if he's talking to Peter or Peter's rebuking him, Peter, uh, Jesus turns his back on him. Uh, in a Jewish culture, that is a complete separation. Peter not was just told that he'd have some very important, powerful role in the church. And now, gets told what? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Do not, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, is Jesus saying he's Satan? Not literally. He's suggesting that, once again, Jesus understands that Peter is flawed. And so the idea of infallibility here tends to have a big struggle, even when we look at Galatians chapter 2. Very later on, I think it's some 20 years later, Paul is going to have to publicly rebuke Peter. Because Peter is being a hypocrite. Peter is spending time with the Jews um, when they're there. But when Gentiles come into town, he, he, he spends time with them. But if Jews come into the picture... He separates them and treats them differently. He's going to be rebuked for this. Peter's not perfect. That's all I'm saying this morning. There is no infallibility there. Now we know through our Bibles that it says that Jesus is the only mediator. He is the last high priest. He is the one that is leading the church. There is no other. And so whether you go to Hebrews or Ephesians or 1 Corinthians or Romans... It is going to tell you on and on and on that Jesus becomes the head of the church. He's leading it. There is no person on this earth that can replace that. And so as, as we have pastoral leadership, that is oftentimes flawed. And I'll confess myself, I'm, I am so far from being infallible. And what I can say about Scripture is what I can say, but boy, my life is... is is one that's just like yours, struggling. And priests and, and pastors today and church leaders, we need to see as more a part of who God's gifted to help lead the church, but not the head or leadership of the church. So who builds the church? If we look at this, as Jesus replies, remember in verse 17, you know, Simon, you, this was not revealed to you by flesh, but I gave this to you, this knowledge. Verse 18 I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. He doesn't say, on this rock, Peter, you're going to begin to build the church, or Peter, here's the keys, I'm out, I'm gone, I'm gone in a few days, I'm out of here, it's all up to you. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In other words, Jesus is building the church. Now let me just step back here for a moment and tell you what that means. When we hold services here and people make decisions to follow Jesus Christ, it is Jesus building the church. 
When people become generous and we give to the poor and give to stores and pantries all over this, this, this area in the world, that is Jesus moving hearts and building His church. When you feel led to get with a group of people and call it a small group and to begin to fellowship around the things of a faith and look at your Bibles and pray together, it is Jesus building the church. When we see baptism unfold and people make a public proclamation of an inward reality of their relationship with Jesus, it is Him building the church. When people are forgiving people that hurt them in horrible ways, it is Jesus building the church. When Christians love lost people who are dark in sin and wandering, it is Jesus building His church. Friends, when you step against the baby in the bathwater and you slander and you disregard or you say, I can be a Christian and don't have to be a part of the church, you are working against the one who is building His church. It says, I will build my church. That's Jesus Himself. And He's still doing it. And he's doing it through the murkiness of all the bathwater that we've left in there. Whether Catholic, whether Lutheran, whether Protestant, whether Episcopalian, you could go down it. And I'm not telling you anything this morning that any of those are perfect because they're not. A lot of flaws, a lot of dirt. Jesus is leading the church, he's building the church, but what is the church? Jesus said to his disciples later on in this passage, verse 24. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whatever loses their life will find uh, their life for me will find it. And so Jesus is saying essentially, it's believing in me. I'm the church. He's going to say, I'm the church. And when you follow me, when you decide to lose everything, that I'm the only option you have. You can't earn favor with God through tradition, through family membership. Just because you, you attach yourself to a gathering of some sorts at some church denomination in town, that does not make you a disciple of Jesus. He says, in your soul, in your heart of hearts, you must say and recognize you denounce everything in your life, that you are no longer the ruler of your own life. And when you take up that cross, you follow him, you automatically become a part of the body of Christ. He says, I'm baptizing you, spiritually speaking, into my body. You become a part of my body. That's the picture of the church. You see how flawed we can get to think it's services and brick and mortar and different things? And all those things are great, but they're terrible traditions if they don't pull us into remembering the truth of who Jesus is, and we remember that, and then we respond. It's why we do response with communion. It's why we do it for baptism. It's why we say there's ways to serve. There's groups to get into. There are ways to say, hey, friends, this is all great, but if you've not surrendered your life, it's just meaningless. You are the body of Christ. Each of you is part of it. Jesus is the church. Jesus leads the church. Jesus builds the church. He is the church. So how do you join the church? Very quickly, I just said, you surrender your life. You believe in Jesus. It says in Matthew 28, it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and just the idea here is that there's Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that we're to verbally profess 
And whenever you did that, whether as you dropped to your knees and said, Jesus, I'm sinful, I'm lost, I need a Savior, I can't do this life without you, you somehow made that decision. Again, I'm not Christian because of my parents. I'm not Christian uh, because of what my parents did for me. I'm not Christian for any other reason or a Christ follower until I surrender all. And when I do that, I become a part of the body of Christ. Again, this is not a country club. This is not a restaurant. Let's try this out. Let's see if we like the dinner. If we don't, we're out. Let's pick a better one or a cheaper one. You see how different that is? This is a family or a body of Christ as the metaphors in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 5, Romans 12. All those passages are going to speak to you are a body of Christ. Now you're going to be held accountable to are you a functioning member? What does that mean? Do you work? Are you a paralyzed limb? I'm going to talk about this next week, but so many people in the church today think that church membership means sitting on Sundays and friends. That cannot be farther from the truth. Jesus is going to ask you one day, who do you say I am? And I gave you some gifts in my body. Were you a functioning arm? Were you a functioning leg? Were you those ears? Were you those hands? Were you those feet? What, what did I give you and were you using it in the body of Christ? You know what we have today? A culture that gets offended or disagrees and tries to find a new restaurant and to consume something different. It says believe in Jesus. And here's the beautiful picture this morning. Once we make that profession of faith, once we realize that, all throughout Scripture it says that you're to be baptized. Find water. Now, I know this morning, because we're going to talk about this baptism, we're going to respond here in a moment with baptism. You ask the question, well, what about infant baptism? So let's go back to our church history. Uh, I believe it's about 200 A.D. Many babies were dying, some of black plagues, some of other things. And it was worrying the community of, of followers of Jesus at that point and trying to figure out how do we answer that question because if they've not been baptized, will they not be in heaven? And they can't make a profession of faith because they're infants. Do you realize four popes would differ on this issue all throughout that? It says in one of the first ones, I am binding that, that infants or need to be baptized in order to be saved. One says if they don't get baptized, that they're going to be in limbo. That's the actual term in the catechism, limbo. That means they don't go to heaven or hell, they're in a middle place. Nowhere in Scripture is that supported. Now, I will say this, as Protestants, nowhere in Scripture do we have to answer the question about what happens to babies. Nowhere. We have a a picture from Genesis to Revelation that we have a loving God that loves all of his children. We make some assumptions that Jesus would not send anyone to hell that didn't have a choice, that he would suffer all the children to him and that he would take them on. But it's for us as a church, infant baptism, we don't demonize that. We say, great, that's more of like your family offering you up as as a baby that wants to, or a family that wants to, to commit their lives to Jesus and you, they want their child to do the same. But Jesus will say that we are to disciple 
and call people to follow him and then find water. And so many times we find in our culture here in, in Wisconsin, we get stuck. Oh, but that's just not the way we've always done it. That's ah, just not the way we've always done it. Or, or that will just sever our family. And I'm by no means this morning, I'm asking you to do any of those things. I'm telling you what we see as authority in Scripture says that we're to make a public proclamation of that. I'm going to ask one of our elders, Dave Becker, to come up. And Dave is going to share kind of something that's gone on and we decided this last week to, to have him share of how this has been applicable to you. So go ahead, Dave. Thanks, Troy. Um, so I'm one of those that is stuck, as like Troy just said. Um, this last summer, I got to read a book that talked about what does it mean to be a follower of Christ. And it convicted me real strongly in two different ways. Um, one way is the whole thing about me not willing to release my tradition. I was uh, raised in a church that practiced infant baptism, and we had uh, first communion, and we had confirmation, and, and I was, it was a great experience, and that's very much my foundation. I, I uh, um, had all kinds, I was surrounded with um, Christian adults that brought me up, and there were serving opportunities, and a great, it was a great experience, but I was really unwilling to kind of let that go, even though as a family, um, as my daughters, I don't expect them to follow that tradition, but still, I, 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 it was really hard for me to let go of that. Then this author brought up, um, if you look in um, Luke 9, at verse um, uh, 59 and 60, Jesus says to um, a man, he says, follow me. And the man responds, um, Lord, first let me bury my father. And Jesus responds, um, I don't exactly know how it says it, but basically saying, um, go and preach the gospel. Let the dead bury the, the dead. Now, I don't know if when you hear that, you might be saying, wow, Jesus is pretty harsh with that person. Well, this author um, points out that really most likely what was going on here was this man was saying, wait until your father, I, I want to wait until my father dies and then I'll follow you. Well, that was really convicting for me because that's what I was saying every Sunday when there was baptism going on. I was going to wait until my father died before I get baptized. And the reason I said that was because my father by far is the biggest influence um, in, in, in my spiritual foundation. He was a huge part of it. And, and when I came to that point where I wanted to be baptized as a believer, I talked to my dad a number of times about it, and he got very angry. He was like, you know, you know, I uh, had you baptized as a child. Isn't that good enough? And anyways, there was a lot of um, tension. And, and so I wasn't willing to um, let that go. It was just you know, I, I wanted that blessing from my father. So I, I was continuing to say, well, I'll, I'll wait. And after my father dies, I'm going to get baptized. Well, anyways, that book um, has been working on me and with Lisa and my wife and I and conversations and prayer that we had. So anyways, um, as part of this service, um, I'm going to get baptized. Hmm. So this morning, we're going to respond and sing, and uh, I'm going to have you stand, and in this section, you get to turn around and face the front, which is nice for you. You have chairs to kneel on. Stand up. Go ahead. And I want to call some of you to something. And this morning, we're not demonizing uh, any denomination. 
There's so many great things that some of these really founding fathers of the early church history have done for us in Christendom. And yet, the bathwater's still murky. In this area with infant baptism, we clearly, as an elder board and as a church body, stand on the reality that baptism as an infant isn't what Jesus was intending. There is no biblical passage to support that. What he does say is, though, get baptized. When you make that profession of faith, and some of you this morning didn't sign up, that's quite a right. If you dressed up this morning, we are probably assuming you're supposed to get baptized. And you might feel that pull. And if you feel that this morning, that this could be your morning, all you need to go down is one of the elders or down there will talk with you, and we would love to celebrate that with you. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we first celebrate that you, your son, Jesus Christ, is building his church. Amen? And he is the head of the church, and he leads the church. And Father, we celebrate those who have joined the church, the body of Christ, through profession of faith and this public proclamation of baptism. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.